Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. I'm a little nervous with this plexiglass gone. I feel like I'm going to fall off here. This unprotected pulpit. Revelation chapter 5 is our text this morning. Revelation 4, we studied last week. We took a a geographic tour of the throne. We went in front of it, behind it. We crawled underneath it. We saw the power of that throne. This week, I want to look at the theological implications of what we saw in that tour last week. I want us to ask on this Pentecost Sunday especially, what is happening between that throne and here? More particularly, what difference will it make in your life? Remember, John is writing to these uh, persecuted disciples throughout Asia Minor. Jesus is looking at each church and He's asking, what, have you, what, what price are you paying for me? Are you willing to acknowledge me in public? Are you willing to lay down your life for me? Or are you just blending in with the rest, uh, seeking the path of least resistance? So, if that is the encouragement, if that is the exhortation, you must be willing to lay down your life for me and trust me no matter what. Then the question is, what kind of plan does God have that you could put such confidence in you would be willing to die for Christ? You'd be willing to be regarded as an outcast. You'd be willing to lose your job you'd be willing to lose your friends. You'd be willing to praise Him even in the midst of suffering and trial. Well, here's the plan. God doesn't keep it a secret. He may not give you every single detail at every juncture of your life that you want, but He gives you the entire plan right here in Revelation chapter 5. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw, this is John, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> My wife Jackie was trained as an occupational therapist. And in the early days of her learning her career, she was assigned to the burn unit. The burn unit in St. Louis it was a regional burn unit. People from many miles away would come to that unit at St. John's Mercy, and many people's lives were saved, and people were restored to lives, productive lives that they never would have except by the treatment in that facility. Now, working in a burn unit is not easy. Some of you may have that responsibility, and it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's terrible work. It's very hard to watch the people who must suffer the treatment that will lead to their healing. It's not uncommon for the patients to beg the doctor and the therapist and the nurses to let them die or even hasten their death. Their wounds have to be debrided every day. It's painful. Their nerve endings, as they're healing, as they're, as they're uh, exposed to uh, the, just the air, they are screaming with pain. Other parts of their body have to be inflicted with pain as skin is harvested to be grafted over the wounds. Very few happy patients in the burn unit. Jackie worked for a physician who had a particular way with the, with the, with the patients there. He, he was tough in many ways. If you didn't know him, if you didn't know his story, you'd say, that man has no compassion. He has no bedside manner. He's telling these people he ignores their pleas to die. He ignores their complaints of pain. He says, it's going to be all right. You've just got to push through it. Hang in there. It's going to get better. No, you've got to get this rune debris. I don't care how much it hurts. This is for your healing. You might be tempted to think that he was cavalier, not caring, unless you looked carefully at his hands. 
His hands are scarred deeply because he had been burned as a youth. He had gone through that same treatment. It was that healing that inspired him to pursue that discipline in medicine. It was his, this, his scarred hands that gave the patients hope. It was his scarred hands that enabled those patients and those who were working with the doctor to trust him that this will lead to healing. I have a plan. I've experienced the plan. I've suffered through the plan myself. You can trust me. The plan that God unfolds for us, the plan of the redemption of the world, the plan of your individual redemption that is outlined in this, in this chapter, chapter 5. The plan that he asks you to trust him with, the plan he asks you to trust him to the point that you're willing to be, to be ridiculed and, and, uh, and cut off from your friends, to, even to lose your life. This is a plan that is held out to you by the scarred hands, the wounded side, the scarred feet, the scarred brow of the lamb who was slain. So it's because... This lamb is the one who leads you in this plan that you and I must respond appropriately. And that includes these three things that are outlined in this text. It means that you need to save your tears, save your hopeless tears. It means that you and I must see this throne where this hope comes from and we must sing the song that is already being sung around this throne and will be sung into all of eternity. What do I mean by saving those tears? Well, first, I need to, we need to understand what this, what this scroll is. I saw in his right hand, seated on the throne, I saw in God's hand, this is God on the throne, there is a scroll that is written on the inside and on the outside. Now, a codex, a bound book like this, bound on one edge, a codex had not been invented yet. That, that kind of book binding would not come until the second century. So the only writing that was known, the book producing, if you will, was, written on, was, was writing on a papyrus scroll. So a scroll was made out, was laid out like this, and, and it was written on there. And then when it was finished, it was rolled up. And if it was the Word of God, it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The New Testament, it was, it was kept in the church. The, the scroll for the book of Romans is 11 and a half feet long. The scroll for the book of Philemon is uh, a foot long. It's a foot long epistle. Written, but this one is written not just on one side and rolled up. This one is written on both sides. Now, what's the significance of that? Now, I'm not inventing these things or reading them into the text. Remember, we're interpreting Scripture from Scripture, and most of these, these symbols are already, have already been used in the books of Ezekiel and Daniel because the Old Testament saints needed to know that Jesus wins too. Remember, the, the theme of Revelation is Jesus wins. Well, the Old Testament saints needed to know that Jesus wins too. And so God gave them Ezekiel and Daniel to tell them about what things are going to happen in the future. And so Ezekiel talks about a scroll. In chapter 3, he was given a scroll, but he opened that scroll. And, and, and that open scroll was descriptive 
of what God was doing presently. Ezekiel, this is what God is doing. This is how he is redeeming. This scroll is not opened. This scroll is not in process. It's not blank on the backside. You can't add, see, those, old, those other scrolls because they were so precious. You wrote on them, then you, you rolled them up, and you wrote on, rolled them up. And then you, when you filled up that one side, you turned it over, and you wrote on the other side. Ezekiel's scroll was only written on one side because Jesus hadn't come yet. This scroll is written on both sides. It's completely full. So it's descriptive of the plan of God. Here is the, in this scroll, on this scroll, is described how God is going to save a people for himself. How God is going to save them from their sins. How God is going to to conquer all of his enemies. How he's going to bring about hope in the future. The problem is no one can read it because it can't be opened. So, so what is the hope? So, uh, John starts crying. He weeps. I need to know what is going to happen. We're being persecuted. We're being put to death. Is there any hope in the future? Is this, is this all a farce? Did Jesus die in vain? Is there any hope for my personal sins? Is there any hope for heaven? I need to know. Who can open that scroll? One of the elders comes and says, stop weeping. Just watch what happens. One who is worthy is going to open that scroll. Verse 5, he's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered. Now, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? This is the one that Abraham prophesied. This is the one Abraham was told about. This is going to be your seed. From you will come this seed. This seed is going to be from the one tribe of Judah. This will be the greatest one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is Christ. This is the one who was described by, by David in the Psalms, the one who would bring us comfort, the one who would make all things right, the one who would enable us to praise even in the midst of suffering. This is the root of David, and this is the one who has conquered the one who died for our sins and was glorified by being raised to life from the dead and who has ascended into heaven. That is the who. It is the one who has conquered. Therefore, he says, weep no more. Don't weep tears of hopelessness. Why do I say say those tears? When my children were young and they did childlike things, made mistakes like dumping over their milk or spilling their Cheerios or, or when they broke a toy or something disappointed them, didn't work out just exactly the way they wanted it to. We would say to them, save those tears. Save those tears for the future. You're going to need them for something that's more important than this. Because we can handle this easily. We can mop up the milk. We can get more Cheerios. We can replace the toy or repair the broken toy. The thing that you didn't experience today that you were so disappointed about is going to occur tomorrow. And then as our children got older and got a little more mature, they could understand things, would say, now, this is why we ask you to save those tears. The death of 
this loved one, the, the breakdown of that relationship, that diagnosis, that hurt, that pain, that is something worthy of weeping. You needed those tears. You needed tears for that. But those tears, those tears that Christians weep must never be hopeless because those tears, as we'll see more, even more clearly in a moment, are tears by which we cry, how long, O Lord? Those are tears by which we cry, Lord, come quickly. Lord, bring your kingdom to pass. Bring hope into this world. And those are tears that will always be answered, yes, by Jesus. They're worthy tears. Worthy. There are things worthy of weeping about and for. But tears that are wept in hope, in the hope of Christ, tears that are wept to the conquering Lamb are ones that will always be answered yes. Charles Spurgeon said, no prayer will ever prevail with God like a liquid petition, which being distilled from the heart trickles from the eye and waters the cheek. Then is God one when he hears the voice of your weeping. If you want to win in prayer, you must weep in prayer. Let your soul arouse itself to eager desire and trouble itself to anguish, and then you will prevail. Jesus wept to teach us how to baptize our prayers unto God in a wave of grief. Weep not hopelessly, yes, but weep with hope knowing that the conquered lamb will answer your prayers for the coming of the kingdom of God. Yes and amen. The second thing we must do in view of this throne is to see the throne. In view of this plan, see the throne. One of my associates in the past, every time he saw me walking toward the pulpit with that with that look that every preacher has approaching the pulpit, like you're going to the gallows, like you're going to your death. You know that no matter how many times you've done this before, something wrong is going to happen this time. You're going to fall through the pulpit, over the pulpit, forget everything that you've studied. Everybody's going to get up and walk and lay. All of those things. Every time my associate would see me, he would say, he would get me in my face and he would say, see the throne. See the throne. Get your eyes off of your sermon. Get your eyes off of the people. Get your eyes on the throne and preach Christ, the conquering lamb, from that throne. Now, what does we see when we look at the throne? We see not just any lamb, but the precious lamb of God. Verses 6 to 8, John uses <clears throat> this word for this translated lamb, arnion. Uh, that he will use 28 times or so. Now, there's another word, amnos, he could have used for, for lamb. That is the generic word for a, what does the dictionary say, a quadrupedal ruminous mammal. He's not referring just to a, a lamb eating grass, just a generic animal. He is, he is using this word that has a particular tenderness to it, like you would use towards your, your pet lamb. Or maybe better, 
as you would refer to your child. If you call your children, you regard your children as your precious lambs. That's why Jesus is called the lamb here, not only because he was the sacrificial, the sacrifice for our sins, but because he was precious to God. This lamb approaches the throne as the son of God. The one sitting on the throne is the father, and this precious one approaches him to take the scroll, to take the plan to say, I will fulfill that plan. Because you, that plan is not the, the one that Ezekiel saw, the one that was being unfolded. That plan in God's hand is the one that existed in his mind from all eternity. His design from all eternity for his son to die in the place of sinners and to save an innumerable people for himself. And Jesus comes gladly as the obedient son, and he says, I will do that for them. And God the Father hands him that plan, and he carried it out. And then we see this, <clears throat> this, the way the plan is, is executed in verse 7, the, uh, 6 and 7. It is fulfilled through seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What in the world is that? That's Pentecost, believe it or not. We, we learned last week that the seven spirits of God, God doesn't have seven spirits. That's a, that's a plural reference to something that is indescribably great. It's like the royal we. The queen refers to herself in the plural because she's so great. These are the seven spirits of seven spirits of God refers to the great spirit of God. The great spirit of God that is all powerful, that's everywhere present. He sees all things. He accomplishes all of God's holy will. This is the spirit that was poured out with power on Pentecost. Why at Pentecost? Now, hang with me here for a minute. You need to see this. Before the foundation of the world, in this scroll that is rolled up and is held in the mind of God, God had determined that he would save people through the slain lamb. But that had to be worked out in history. So before the foundation of the world, God said, I want you, son, to go and redeem these people. The son said, I will do so. And the son came to earth. He was born of a woman. He, he, he lived obediently. He was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected. And when he ascended, the Bible tells us when he ascended, he was glorified. He went back to heaven. And we learn from the Psalms what Jesus said to the Father when he went back to heaven. We have that conversation in Psalm 2. When he went back to heaven and he showed God his scars and his, and his side, and he had accomplished our redemption, he said, Lord, give me the nations. And because he had fulfilled his part of the bargain, the Father had to fulfill his part of the bargain, which was to dispense the Spirit. And the Spirit fell on the church in order to go into all the world to preach the gospel and to gather the elect from all the nations. And that Pentecostal power that fell on the church then is not absent from the church now. That same Spirit empowers us 
The question is not whether the Spirit's power is there. The question is, are we practicing it? And the only way to practice it is to keep your eye on the throne. It is only by keeping your eye on the throne that you remember the Spirit has come with power. And it's when you remember the Spirit has come with power that you have the nerve to go to your neighbor and say, if you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? May I share with you my faith? When you have the, it is only by seeing the throne, remembering how powerful the Spirit is, that you're able to stand up in the locker room and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk that way. It's, that, it's, it's only by looking at the throne, remembering the power of the Spirit, that you're able to say in your business, we're not going to compromise in that way. You can take everything I have. The Spirit of Pentecost is still here. The only reason the church is not experiencing the same powerful forward movement of the growth of the kingdom is because we're not living in the same power of the Spirit that the New Testament believers did. But it is the Spirit in which our brothers and sisters in China are living and our brothers and sisters in the Southern Hemisphere are living. Our brothers and sisters in very hard, difficult parts of this country are living. Today is the day to put that into practice. It is to look at that throne and say, what in the world am I afraid of? And then it, it looks at, look at this. Look at what happens with your prayers in verse, in verse 8. Your prayers, your prayers for the forward movement of the kingdom are gathered up before the Lord and they are as beautiful to him, they sound as beautiful to him as someone playing a harp, and they, they are as sweet-smelling to him as, as, as incense. What makes them so? Prayers that are prayed in the name of Jesus. Prayers that are prayed for those things that burden the heart of Jesus. Well, then finally, I want you to look in verses 9 through 14. Not only are you and I to see the throne... And live hopefully and courageously. We're to sing this theme. We're given a three-verse hymn here. The first stanza is this, the manifold wisdom of God. In verses nine, uh, verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. If it hasn't become clear to you already, let me make it absolutely clear. Here is the only way to be saved, to experience eternal life. It is for you to despair of doing anything good enough to earn your way into heaven. It is for you to take your life, to, to, to release your life and to say, I'm no longer going to make my own plans and my own, and my own way. I'm giving it to you. Lord, I want you to give me your righteousness in the place of my sin. And Lord, I want you to call the shots in my life for the rest of my life. The Lord Jesus was slain in your place. It was his innocent blood. He is the only one who could have opened that scroll, who could have fulfilled that plan because he was perfectly God and perfectly man. And then look at the beauty of this plan it is as it is unfolded. For you were slain and your blood is ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here is the goal of God. God's goal is not merely to, exp to express diversity in heaven. 
The reason God is saving from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is because it's going to take that in order to reflect the fullness of His image into all of eternity. There is no one language, no one ethnicity, no one people group, no one sociological stratus that can adequately express the beauty and the wonder of the image of God. God painted this world with its many colors and its variety because it would take that. God makes, makes billions and billions of people whom he's, going to, whom he's going to redeem because it will take that to approximate the beauty of the image of God. Do you wonder, there's a question in our country about whether there is systemic racism of course there is systemic racism throughout the entire world, throughout all humanity, through all, of, through all races, through all times, and even in the evangelical church. Why? Because the devil hates this plan of God more than any other. He knows that the full beauty and grace and glory of God will be reflected when there are representatives from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered there. So for all of history, he's been warring against it. But nothing can stop his kingdom from accomplishing that. And for you and me, nothing can stop us from pursuing his agenda either. Because look in verse 10, he made you, and we could really translate, he makes you to be kingdom and priest to our God who shall reign on the earth, who are reigning on the earth. We've already learned in chapter 1, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 21, that we are already considered kings and queens. We are ruling and reigning now. And every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, our kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not praying for the future by and by. We're calling in, we're calling in support. We're calling in the heavy artillery to continue to pursue the kingship that we are exercising over all this earth, including winning people to Christ and pursuing the reflection of the complexion of heaven breaking down every stronghold of the evil one. There's no excuse for us to live so cowardly, so timidly, afraid that somebody's going to find out what we believe and, and lose our relationship, or, or afraid that somebody's going to, to think that we're on the wrong side of some political law, some political rule, party. We are kings. He's entrusted to us a kingdom. And so what do we do? We keep worshiping now and forever. We worship this word, this lamb who was slain, who has all power and wealth to expose our guilt. He has all wisdom and might to cure our guilt with His grace, and He has all honor and glory and blessing that should evoke from us grateful obedience. And then the third stanza is this in verse 14. It's a very short one. It's just amen. 
This is where all things are headed. This is where all history is headed. Toward the divine amen. When Christ will come and bring his kingdom and make all his enemies his footstool and force everyone and every creature to praise him either willingly or shamefully. And every person, every person who has received the free gift of salvation, who has yielded his life or her life to the Lordship of Christ and has endured to that day, will sing this word, amen. Every time we say amen, after every hymn, after every, after any prayer, at any other time, we are giving testimony, not just that we agree with the present, but we are giving testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ, because he is the conquering lamb and because we belong to him, is going to bring about the great amen. Donald Gray Barnhouse loved to tell the story about a, a friend who visited a hospital, it was a, and he was a minister, and he... <clears throat> Um, actually, I don't know if he was a minister. He was, a, he was a, just a layman, I think, visiting a hospital. And he would visit uh, those in the hospital wards who were in bad shape, and he would witness to them. And he saw one man. He came to his, his bedside, and he asked him. He, maybe he saw a kind of smirk on his face and a, a note of pride and arrogance. So he said, uh, do you think if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? He said very pompously, I should think that I would be allowed into heaven. Of all people, I think I shall be found in heaven. Really, he said, uh, what do you think they do in heaven? Well, I'm not sure. He was taken aback by that question. I'm not sure exactly what they do, but I suppose they, I suppose they sing a lot in heaven. Well, yes, you're right. As a matter of fact, they do sing. What do you think they sing? I don't, I don't know the hymn exactly. Well, he said, let me read it to you. We have the words for it right here. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's you who have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Now, he said, I'm going to leave this New Testament in your hands. I want you to read the words of the hymns that you're going to be singing in heaven. I'm going to come back next week and visit you. He returned to that man. He had a very different countenance. He said, I read that, I read those verses 50 times. And I will never again say, I will make it into heaven. I will never again claim arrogantly that I will achieve my worthiness to get into heaven. I see from this text, from these words, that I can only make it into heaven by the worth of Jesus Christ. He is my worthiness. That's the hymn I'll sing now and forever. That's your hymn. Not only that you're going to make it into heaven by dragging and being dragged into heaven, but by living with the throne fully in view, confidently in view, may we march into heaven declaring 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain and has conquered. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing to us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. I pray for brothers and sisters who are discouraged, discouraged by themselves, by their own besetting sins, their own frailties. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are afraid of the future, of the present. I pray for those who are disheartened. I pray for those who are arrogant. I pray for everyone that you would conquer them afresh with hope, with grace, and with security found only in the conquered Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said together, Amen.